0: You don't need them today. Next week, um, we'll bring them. um, Next week, I had originally planned to start Wordsworth last week and forgot to do the lyric. I'm going to do two poems today, and they're short and then next week we're gonna, we're gonna do one of Wordsworth's longer poems um, see, I get confused because of the two classes um, we've done Blake, you all know Blake now and I read Blake's London and if you remember that poem you remember um, London being described in terms of laws, the the, the chartered street, the chartered Thames, remember And the marriage hearse that was plagued—that was um, Blake's vision of a London that had lost its bearing. It's really strange to think about this because we're looking at New England and America as having lost its faith in a fundamental way. That we've seen Melville's critique of Christianity in the opening (coughs) section of *Moby Dick*, and it's interesting that the first Romantic poet we read, Blake, was critiquing London in much the same way. I mean, it's a very different critique, but it, it's, it's an expression of his awareness that London has fallen, that it's lost its way. Um, the two poems I want to read of Wordsworth, Surprised by Joy, and um, composed upon Westminster Bridge, show <coughs> indirectly how much the West here in England Has moved away from its Christian foundations. Um, Lots of people love Wordsworth. I was really taken by him. For once, if any of you have read Wordsworth, you know how calming his language is. His poetry is very, I don't. It's just a calming, quiet line. And and then at some point, I realized what was going on and (coughs) am not that enthralled with him anymore. Um, Lots of academics are very much enthralled with Wordsworth. And I think it's because lots of academics um, have this ideal of reclining in a tower, you know, in their peace and comfort. When you read Wordsworth, it's hard not to feel that you're... It's like you're in a bourgeois chair, comforted and secure and... But there's a whole spiritual dimension of the world that he just never touches. Um, And so, one of the reasons for reading choosing to read this when we could have I could have bypassed him and gone on to something else is it's good to be aware of that decline and something in place of it what we're going to see next week when we do the intimations mode it's this or intimations oh this longer poem of wordsworth is one of the problems that results from this decline this turning away from joy and the church and the sacraments I mean, so so next week, I'm, we're gonna start the Intimations Ode, which is one of his most famous poems. It's a long poem, and I'll divide it into two weeks so we can manage to get it in, okay? But today, I, I wanted to start with just two poems. One of them is this vision of the city. Um, I'm sorry you don't have copies, but you'll have them next week. It's meant to be, to set next to London, Blake's London, which we did, and you, I think you know, you're aware of that poem now. The other one is called Surprise by Joy and I want to just say a, a word about this before I read it. Um, C.S. Lewis named <coughs> one of his books Surprise by Joy, and C.S. Lewis had on his mind this poem, and Wordsworth, I think, in some ways got it from Dante. Now that's a stretch, but hold on and you'll see it in a second, Surprise by Joy. Wordsworth and, and his sister Dorothy used to take walks all the time all the time, in the the forest, um, the hills area of London, which is supposed to be extraordinarily beautiful, forest and trees and glades and glens, and and, um, he was a poet of nature, he loved nature. Um, All of his poems indirectly are about nature. Um, Dorothy died, and he's out on a walk by himself, and he becomes so transported by this moment that he turns to tell her, because he's so overcome by joy that he forgets that she's gone. Now, I'm assuming lots of widowers and um, widows have that experience. You know, that if you're alone and let's say you're watching TV and it's a sentimental movie and something tears up, it seems to me in that moment it's instinctive to turn, you know, to a loved one who's no longer there. So, that's, these are the two poems Surprised by Joy, Westminster Bread. To go back to Dante for a moment, just to show you the relevance here, for those of you who've done it with me, you remember that um, when Dante was reaching, the, when he came come to the, the ledge of gluttony, he was joined by Stasius. Remember, he was the Roman poet um, who, who had been, <laughs> I think he'd been doing penance for something like, I can't remember, 500 years? Somebody help me out here, it was forever. Um, it was a long, long time. Stasius arrives, the mountain shudders, because every time a soul is released, the mountain shudders, it shakes, it's a joy, you know, that that shakes the earth. Um, And the three poets are standing there together. If you remember our work on on the, on the Commedia, you remember that at the top of Purgatory, Dante's focused on poetry. They're approaching the level of lust, and, and, he's, and he's exploring the various kinds of poetry, one that was too platonic, one that was too racy, mm-hmm. you and the mean. And it's at that point that Dante says he writes a poetry following the words of the Holy Spirit. And that's what distinguished him and the troubadours his brand of the troubadour poetry from the others. So he's critiquing poetry and helping us to understand the nature of poetry, something that's too platonic, too worldly, too in the head, the other two in the body, two explicitly sexual, and the other is this other poetry that deals with all things honestly, but with the help of the Holy Spirit. That was what we did at the at the top of Purgatory. Stasius is there, it's three poets, Dante, Virgil, and Stasius. And when Stasius is identifying himself, and they recognize because he was one of the great Roman poets and he wrote this epic that isn't, I mean, it's not red, it's not a great epic like Virgil's. And Dante and Virgil look at each other and smile, because statius has, has just told them how much he admired Virgil, and he doesn't know that the man in front of him is Virgil. He sees the two men smiling and asks why they're smiling. I, I can't remember Dante's words, but he says, this is, you know, the man you've loved so much. I mean, imagine, imagine going to heaven, truly for a minute, and seeing the people you never thought you would see. I, I think, I, I mean, there's a sin in here for me. I, there are times when I find myself wanting to go to heaven for the wrong reason. <laughs> I, I so much want to say thank you to Homer. The, the thought that I could talk with Dante, you know, or, 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 or um, Shakespeare. Shakespeare, or Melville, and you know I've already said this about Jane Austen or any of it, and thank them, you know, I can't, I can't even imagine that moment. Um, for all they've given me. Um, anyway, this is a moment Stasius finds out that this is Virgil in front of him. He is so overwhelmed, he, he kneels down, if you remember that, to kiss his feet and tries to embrace him and what happens? It's a shade. Remember? And, and it's, it's surprised by joy that he was so become, so transported for a moment that he'd forgotten he was a shade and virtue <laughs> was a shade. Um, so this is this moment. And I'm sure people who have lost love, and particularly widows and widows, you know, find themselves at moments where the, the joy and the longing is so overwhelming that you, know, you turn for a moment. And so this is Surprised by Joy. Okay? Wordsworth. <coughs> Surprised by joy, impatient as the wind, I turn to share the transport, Oh, with whom but thee long buried in the silent tomb, that spot which no vicissitude can find? Love, faithful love, recalled thee to my mind, but how could I forget thee? Through what power, even for the least division of an hour, have I been so beguiled as to be blind to my most grievous loss? That thought's return was the worst pang that sorrow ever bore, save one, one only, when I stood forlorn knowing my heart's best treasure was no more, that neither present time nor years unborn could to my sight that heavenly face restore. The the poem trails off in grief, I mean the the moment of joy is fleeting, it's gone. What it recalls now is the loss, and I want you to remember this because when we do intimation mode you're going to you're going to see something in the absence of a sacramental world. What what sustains us in our grief? Um, You'll you'll see that for Wordsworth it's memory holding on to things, but how sustaining can that be? Let me just leave it there, okay, because when we do intimations, it'll become clear. The second, um, composed upon Westminster (coughs)
1: Bridge.
0: Remember, set this next to London, Blake's London. (coughs) Earth is not anything to show more fair. Dull would be he of soul who could pass by a sight so touching in its majesty. This city now doth like a garment wear the beauty of the morning, silent, bare. Ships, towers, domes, theaters, and temples lie open unto the fields, to the sky, all bright and glittering in the smokeless air. Never did sun more beautifully steep in his first splendor, valley, rock, or hill. Ne'er saw I, ne'er felt, a calm so deep. The river glideth at his own sweet will. Dear God, the very houses seem asleep, and all that mighty heart is lying still. Um, So... Don, just, I forgot to mention this, T- typically what we do in a class is we begin with a lyric because it was my way of finding, the whole purpose of the class was to find Christ where ordinarily we don't find him. That was the single purpose and, and I th- hope everybody's seeing that he's always there even if we don't see him. He was there for the pagans in the Iliad, the Odyssey, the, you know, the Aeneid and, and in remarkable ways they had this intuition of, the return of the king, some some apocalyptic kind of event that would take place. The church calls it the Parousia, the second coming. Christ will come in judgment. Every one of those epics ends with a Parousia action. Um, and through the through our time together, I've been choosing lyrics that very often show him explicitly, like the um, Hopkins, "The Wind Windhover." One of my favorites is is the uh, uh, supernatural love it's a poem by a woman who recalls a a moment when she was four years old and she was with her father she pricks her finger it's a nothing event but she manages the poem in such a way that you're aware that in that moment she's participating on the cross it's an amazing poem so we do things like that they're just and one of the reasons I I open with lyrics is I, I want everybody to to know how much beauty and music are a part of literature, that they're at its heart. Um, and, and in the lyric we hear that, that musical element more clearly. It's more noticeable, it's more palpable. Um, although I believe it's there in all literature, even though it's not, you know, we're not reading rhyme, but, so we typically begin with the lyric and then we go into the. the epics on the novels we've been reading, and then we did Shakespeare the Prize, so just so you know. Okay, quick review. <laughs> um, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago I asked this question. Um, can, can a Christian community maintain its faith without the sacraments? You all remember that. Listen, this is really important. This is, can a Christian community maintain its faith without the sacraments." Because in that whole opening of Moby Dick we, we find a Christian community that's failing in some fundamental way. Um, there's hypocrisies, um, there's an incomplete living of the faith. Remember Lazarus is outside the bar, Peter Coffin has no awareness of him. You all know the Lazarus story in Luke when he goes to um, when Dives, the rich man, goes to hell, he asks for help and he can't. Lazarus is with Abraham in God's bosom. Um, Father Mapple um, is calling everybody to relive the Jonah story, but he does it with this um, spirit of vengeance. It says, fire burn. There's a little bit of that fire and brimstone darkness. In fact, that whole darkness covered, um, is carried through the whole um, Moby Dick Ahab action. It's Ishmael that cuts into that. If, if you take Ishmael out, you're left with a very, very dark world, particularly with Ahab. <coughs> Mrs. Hussey, remember, cares more about cleaning her house and um, not putting out more money to, to buy a new door than she does for Kwee Kwee, when she thinks has committed suicide. And Peleg and Bildad, the ship's captains, cheat so, everywhere we see, everywhere we look, every, everything we experience, there's something wrong with this faith. And this is 19th century, middle. And, and we know, and Melville certainly knows, that, that what's at issue is, is two fundamental ways of reading are coming into collision. There's a whole new scientific way that's shaping man's mind, has over against a biblical way, and they're in conflict. As you read through Moby Dick, you cannot read a chapter almost, and not be aware of the various ways of reading. So many of them are modern, rationalistic, scientific ways. And then finally in the quarterdeck chapter, we see Ahab take control of the ship, and he does it by appealing to that sense in all of us that we've been wounded, that we all carry wounds from our past um, and want to get back. And that's his quest. He, w- he wants to get back at the thing that caused him this injury. How much that's a part of everybody on the ship. Otherwise he wouldn't be able to get control. And, and Ishmael himself says, I cried, I cried louder than all of them. He was so completely welded into that. So it, at the bottom of this book is a failed Christianity and, and the importance that wounds have in shaping our lives and what we do with them. And what we see in the whole Ahab story is this fundamental sense that there's some evil in back of it all. I'm gonna to come to this again, I'll read it in a minute. Um, and um, and his answer to it is to want to strike through this, the appearances of things and get to that ultimate source of the evil that causes all this. <coughs> um, so I asked this question, you know, um, can a and I put it different different ways. One of the ways was, can a Christian community prevent itself from declining into a moral code without the sacraments? If you take the sacraments away, that's what Christianity becomes, and you know that across the world, Christ is looked at as a moral figure, a prophet, a moral speaker. For most of the world they have no I mean, it's just amazing to me that they could read the Bible and come away from that. You know? With all the miracles he performed, and if he's if he's the second person of the Trinity coming down, then his very presence in the human body is a miracle. I mean there's cannot be anything more astonishing than that. If you take that away, how can any Christian community avoid declining into a moral code? That's the great problem that Melville's dealing with here. And we, not only do we see it at land, but when Ahab takes over the ship, nobody can resist him. So in the presence of evil, and by the way, I don't, I don't want to say that Ahab, I'm not saying Ahab's evil, but he's certainly under the influence of an evil figure, Fadala. Okay, there's no question Fadala is an evil creature. There's some goodness. Remember, all tragic heroes are noble, all of them. All of them, or, or, or we won't have a sense of a noble fall. We don't see the nobility in Ahab, we're not reading this well, because he's an extraordinarily noble person. In fact, one of the reasons he's so angry is the modern world has taken away the sense of nobility to people. So, it, it, it makes people things, so he, and he's clearly angry about that. He takes over the ship, nobody can deal with him. Why not? Why, why is a whole crew, and if that crew is representative of America, as an extension of what we saw back in New England, why is nobody capable of dealing with evil? What we're seeing is a bourgeois world given over to greed, cupidity, wealth, comfort, security. Nobody wants to be bothered. They want to be comfortable. They want to be wealthy. They want to be secure. That's our that's our world. We saw it with Dante. We've, that's our that's what we've inherited. So we're watching a Christian world go to sleep on land, and then we're watching the opposite: that Christian world get vindictive to strike out at whatever it was that gave this wound. So that's where we were for the last couple of weeks. Um, and last week, what I did was take time out to look at the Eucharist as a sacrament and what it was. And the one point that I wanted to make clear there was: if you go back and look at all the Heresies, I, I put together a packet, Don, I don't know if you want it, just let Suzanne know if you do. With all the heresies, and showed you that the, in, with respect to every one of them, they were all off in their understanding of Christ. Arian wanted to protect the unity of God, and so made Christ a man. Sibelius saw um, Christ as the Father in another mode, that the Father had come, come down, inhabited a body, went back. So in all these heresies you see various ways in which men who are extremely smart misunderstand the nature of Christ. They, they don't see that Christ actually fully entered into, a, a, became a human being. So he brought his divine nature fully into our human nature and became a man. So the Son becomes Christ. And you remember the importance of this from Dante. Could be, those of you who are here, because remember, in, in Canto 7, in the Jesus, the, the whole issue is this. Man, man's original sin is against God. We offended him. Um, and there was no way for us to atone for that sin then. How, how can a human being who's a finite creature give satisfaction for a sin against an infinite God? Yeah? So. Remember from Canto 7, either man was going to be forever damned or God was simply overlooked for sin. How could God do that given that he created us in his image, that there's something noble to human beings? The only way that it could be done is if the Son of God came down, took on our nature, and went to a cross, paid for that sin. So it was really important to see that there's a whole understanding to what goes on in the redemption. And at the center of it is the Eucharist. And if you look at the Eucharist, you can see that the various attitudes that people have towards the Eucharist today reflect those heresies. Either Christ is not there and the, and the and the, the 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 bread and the wine are simply bread and wine. He's not present, yeah? It's just commemorative, do this in remembrance of me. The Lord the 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 greater part of the Protestant world looks at at communion in that way. Yes? It's commemorative. It's still bread um, and wine. Um, Luther, um, as you know who really rebelled against the church, believed in the real presence of Christ. He believed that. But something in his mind, I mean in, in his animosity or what There's lots of things to say about him, but claimed that Christ, the real, he believed in the real presence. He believed that Christ was in the body and or the bread and wine, but coexisted with it, did not transform it. So it never became fully Christ. Is that clear? So his term was consubstantiation, coexisting in. So the bread and wine never got completely transformed. The Catholic Church, and by the way, the whole Catholic Church from the beginning, the Catholic Church, and by the Catholic, I mean Eastern Orthodox, because if you look at the Orthodox world, the Eastern Orthodox world, if you go into that world, it's, it's virtually the same as it was for the Catholic Church from the very beginning. It's sacramental, they believe in the sacraments, it's, it's all, the change comes with the Reformation. Um, the, the, whole, the whole Christian world, Catholic, world by that including orthodoxy in you know the 11th century the orthodox world breaks off um, um, they all believed in um, the the actual presence of christ in the eucharist that that was christ it's not until the 13th and 14th century when all these rationalists begin raising doubts about it that they have to articulate it in the form of a dogma and that's when that dogma that that doctrine is developed of transubstantiation. It wasn't that it was new, it had always been that way. It's that they had to clarify it the way they did the heresies in the early church history. So anyway, it's, it's only the, the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic Church that acknowledges that the Eucharist is actually Christ. So the, the wafer and the wine are, have actually been fully tr- transformed. That when we take that Eucharist, we take, take taste and see. You know the biblical—it's not read and understanding your head. Read the Bible. It's taste and see. Take it in. So, the, for the Catholic and East Orthodox, we are receiving Christ, transformed in His human nature. So I wanted—I wanted to take a time because there was some confusion at that time. One of the one of the parishioners in the in the. Um, evening class, raised a question about communion because she had come from the Protestant world and she brought all these statistics from her research online that showed that look at all these Protestant churches that take communion and, and I had to clarify because um, there's, a, there's a fundamental difference in the way we understand what goes on in the Eucharist so we took time out. Um, okay, let me... so in a sense we took a break and now we're... I've got, got a sweatshirt, Bev, if you want one. No, I'm good. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. Um, we talked about the plot. <laughs> I want to figure it up again. Um, remember, remember the plot, the plot is an imitation of an action, an invisible action. The plot's the sequence of events, right? That sequence of events, according to Aristotle, is an imitation of an action, and by action, he meant something invisible, something we can't see. So it seems to me, up to this point, the invisible action, what the plot is about, um, I'm going to put it this way. What this plot is about is a tension between various world views. One of them is Protestant, largely Protestant, that we get in Ahab and the other is scientific. Those two views are in collision, okay? They're, they've set up the metaphysics of Ahab's quest, and, and Ishmael's quest, actually. We've got those two views in collision, and, and Ishmael, in, in chapter after chapter, in the way that he reflects on those, shows various ways of re- reading the world. One of them scientific, the other is religious. Included in religious, we can say mythic, because so, so many of the things that he does refers to a mythic world. Perseus, Hercules, you know, the, the, the mythic beliefs of Eastern religions. But at the same time, both of, all of those various worldviews come down to two worldviews radically in conflict with each other, Ahab's and Ishmael's. Ahab's view is fundamentally, radically dark. I'm going to read passages today that'll, that'll remind us of that. Ishmael's view is, is, is full of wonder, openness, there's a humility in him, he's open to things, he constantly experiences wonder, and he he constantly finds humor in things. You can't (laughs) read him, it seems to me, you can't read him without laughing, particularly when he's talking about things like whale balls or... (laughs) 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 Tom, be glad, be glad all this is getting directed at me today. <laughs> um, so, if we, if we look at the plot, remember when Ishmael begins, he's at the point of committing suicide at the opening. They set out to sea, and we leave the culture, the Christian culture, with all of its flaws. We set out to sea, and it's here that we're going to explore the metaphysical ground of, of everything that's wrong here. And the last time, before we took this break, I said that this series of chapters here is what I call a setup um, sequence. After the quarter dec- um, chapter where Ahab takes control of the ship, you get Ishmael reflecting on the various activities on board ship and the various aspects of the whale. And the interesting thing about his chapters, this is so important to see, he takes a very factual thing a tail the forehead, the spout, the triworks, you know the deck, the com- it it doesn't matter. He always starts with a thing in front of him and he explores it from these various ways he he goes into historical ways of looking at it and he always comes to some conclusion that puts it in perspective. and we saw that over and over again what he's doing is is teaching us how to read. And that's going to sound strange to you, but one of the assumptions that I'm bringing into the class that I, everybody, I don't like that word class, that our meetings, um, is that we don't read very well. We think we do, particularly because we're educated. Um, my claim has been that we don't read very well at all. If you look at what Ishmael's doing, he's teaching us to read because he keeps talking about different points of view and the way in which men minds the thing, and in some ways uh, misinterpret it. See it incompletely. So that there was that, that one section in the chapters 55, 6, 7, where he's talking about various representations of the whales, remember? And he shows how erroneous they are, that, that people look at things in all these ways. So he's teaching us to be eclectic, to bring various... Pe- Catholic, to bring all these perspectives to not rule them out. So that, we learn, so that we learn to be open to what's going on in the world, because what we're learning again and again is people are not. They, they bring these ideas to what they're doing and don't see very well. So this is an, all a setup. And remember, one of, the, one of the things that I suggested then was, it's important for him to do that because he's got to help us trust him. Because what we're shown in all these chapters is that so many people react to these whale stories, these fabulous stories, with disdain and contempt. They laugh it off. Um, and, uh, in the Jonah story, Reconsidered, remember the, 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 the old seaman laughed at the Jonah story. You all know the Jonah story, where Jonah was swallowed by the whale. He said, well how ridiculous, how ridiculous. That couldn't have happened because the spouts are too small that if a, if a, man, if a man was thrust out through the spouts, he, he would get suffocated and stuck. <laughs> Yeah. and, um, and he, he couldn't have stayed in the mouth because if he stayed in the mouth he would have been dissolved by the gastric juices of the whale so he's got, what we see is the modern rationalistic mind explaining the fabulous away and if you remember in that chapter of the Jonah story reconsidered um, the priest at the end explains it away because he says it's a miracle so we're left saying of the Jonah story which is biblical how stupid if this is what the Bible is based on, how can you believe in it? So the problem that Melville is facing is he's got, to help, he's got to help us learn to trust him in his readings because in so many of the episodes we see people blowing these things off, explaining them away. There's no place for the, for the fabulous, the mythic. For those of you who've been with me from the beginning, you know that how important I believe myths are. That I think one of the losses of the modern world is that we've lost a sense of myth. Science can't, there's some things science can't explain. Let's do. So what Ahab, I'm sorry, Melville Ishmael is trying to do is help us learn how to read and to trust him. Because at the end, something strange is gonna happen and either we're gonna blow it off the way everybody else does, or we're gonna wonder, is this true? Now, just for a moment, stop and think about the importance. How many people look at the Jonah story and think, if this is biblical, are you kidding? Swallowed by a rail and thrown up. If you can can believe in that, you're stupid. You're certainly not rational. So Ishmael, Melville, has to do everything he can to help gain our trust, because what we're going to see at the end is nothing short of extraordinary. So these are set-up chapters. He's, he's, He's... Helping us to read, to, to learn to feel towards things the way we should, to, to see things more clearly. And the, the chapters that we're reading this week are, I would call, denouement chapters. We talked about this word, unraveling. That things are beginning to unravel. They're not quite there yet, but they're the setup for the denouement. In the chapters that we've been reading for this week, Ahab is going to um, break the quadrant and throw it away. The quadrant is that instrument that that sailors use to see themselves in relation to the fixed constellations of the stars in the heaven. Um, He breaks the compass and and fixes it himself. He loses the log and the line. So all of the navigational instruments used for moving through the ocean to pursue his object are either thrown away or replaced with something of his own and it's during that period that he he takes absolute control of the ship <coughs> he starts ascending the mast so he can be on the lookout for moby dick when he loses the compass he, he makes a new one of his own so he wants control of everything now stop and think about this because at the center of the soul is this darkness in Ahab. He's got to get back at it. And he's reached a point now in his quest where he has to control everything. Absolute control. There's nothing he will turn over to anybody. And it's during this period that a couple of things happen. One of them is this sperm, spermacetic thing that I want to read in a second where where Ishmael undergoes a, another turn of parapetya. The member of the that a turn, it's a conversion moment. And it's during um, these chapters that Pip is abandoned at sea and has that vision. And I want to come to that because it it seems like it's nothing, but as a matter of fact, it's not. Um, Something's happening with that that I think is really important for the whole action. So what's happening here is that that we're getting closer to the climax. We can feel ourselves approaching the climax. Ahab, Ishmael's getting away from these meditations on things. More and more is happening. Ahab's taking more control. He's getting fierce about it. Pip almost drowns. Um, And Ishmael has this change. So I want to look at those um, today. Just quickly, um, can you all recall the prophecies? Um, Remember in the beginning, there were all those prophetic omens and signs. Peter Coffin, remember the name? Yeah. Mrs. Hussey's um, sign had um, pots that looked like the crossroads of a gallows, if I remember.
1: <coughs>
0: what else? Um,
1: the, stranger, the, hmm? the stranger,
0: the prophet. The was, prophet, Elisha, yeah. yeah. And remember Elijah in the morning met Ishmael that one morning and said, Signed up for the day of judgment. Or no. See you, he said a couple of things. On one of the occasions he said, see if you can find them, see if you can find them. I'd, I'd liken that to that Hamlet opening line, remember. Who's there? What are those shadows that just boarded? Did you see them? Because the shadows are images of evil. Are you aware of them? Did you see them? Can you find them? It's one of, it's one of the challenges, it seems to me, us as readers. because remember, remember, he's speaking to Ishmael, but us. Can you find them? It's like that opening line of Hamlet. Who's there? How do we answer that? Can we find evil in the world? Or, or like the Christians at the beginning, are we hiding behind this bourgeois world of comfort? We don't want to be disturbed. We don't want to be bothered with things. Um, and the, the other thing that Elijah said was, uh, did you sign up? Remember when he signed up? Then I'll see you on the Day of Judgment, see you on the Day of Judgment. Now interestingly, everybody else <coughs> is going to die on this, this um, endeavor, except Ishmael. He's the only one that will come back. But, but it's, in, it's also during this period, in this, this sequence of chapters we're reading today, that we learn about um, Fadala's prophecy to Ahab. And he prophecies that um, Fadala will go before Ahab, that Ahab will not die until he sees two hursts, and um, that he he will die he will die by hemp. Oh. Yeah, and Ahab's response yeah. to the other oh.
1: one is that, that the dollar would go first, but he would come back to guide Ahab.
0: Yeah. There are three parts to that prophecy, but, um, and when Ahab looks at that, this is a little bit like Macbeth, if you know the Macbeth story. And by the way, it's about reading.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Truly, Ahab completely misreads it, like he does everything. He, he, he reads the whale as being evil. I mean, I, for a moment, stop and think in your own lives. I mean, I certainly know it from my own. So it's, how many times in our, our lives do we assume the worst of a person? Mm-hmm. We, it, it, can, it can be somebody with tattoos, you know, walking down the street, like quick Quig. Mm-hmm. It can be in our own family, where our instinctive response is to assume the worst and, remember Leontes and Winter's and then project a whole wrong onto the world, so that we're making the world over in our own image, some darkness that we carry within us. Okay? So the thing about reading is not small. I keep hitting everybody over the head. I hope you have strong heads. Um, we misread a lot. We just don't. We too much read for our selfishness. We see things that way. But, and the whole question is whether Ishmael can come out from that to bring something back to us to help us read the way we should. Fadala gives Ahab this, this, this prophecy and says, "I will go before you. Um, you won't die till you see these first, and you'll um, you'll die." Um, with, by hemp. Um, and Ishmael, I mean, Ahab says, doesn't know what to make of the doll going before he says, I'm at sea. There's no way I'm going to die by hearst. And hemp is for hanging, and there's no way I'm going to die by hanging here at sea. So he thinks he's protected. Said, he even says, I'm immortal. <laughs> Reminds me of Hector. I'm, I'm not, I don't have anything to worry about. So what's happening in these chapters is that we're getting set up for the end. We're about ready to come to the climax, okay? And I want to look, I don't think we'll have time today, but I want to look really closely at the PIP episodes and the Carpenter, and um, let me see if I can get to some of that now. Um, Just a very very quick review. I'm going to do this in a rush. You can take notes just to note chapters, but I just want to call these things to mind, and then I want to read some passages um, this morning with you because I, I really want to get away from the theology that we jumped into last week back into the book. So um, Chapters 55-57, those were the chapters in which Ishmael is looking at various representations of the whale. And remember, he goes from one chapter to another that says, um, less erroneous. They're more accurate. He's being critical of the way in which people misrepresent things when they tell stories. Um, what should call it? Fake news. <laughs>
1: um,
0: in the Death of the Whale, chapter sixty-nine. Remember, he he. Um, as they watch the whale skeleton set loose, and they watch the sharks and everybody attack them. Um, He talks about the similarity between the funeral of the whale and human funerals. And he makes the point that even after somebody's dead, they continue to have a hold on them after life. So there's nothing that he looks at in the world that he doesn't relate to our human predicament. What he's teaching us to do is... is to read with some sense of the analogies of being, that all things are interconnected. Because in the scientific world they tend to get isolated. So he's teaching us to read. I know somebody's trying to get in done. I think you just Um, Alan Tate calls this way of reading the symbolic Mm -hmm. imagination. The Symbolic Imagination. He's got this wonderful essay. I think I'm going to actually print it and make it available for you guys because it's such an extraordinary essay. The Symbolic Imagination. It's it's a way of reading that that shows the analogy of things always. that There's always some connection between the thing in front of us and something else. And we very seldom see it. The Monkey Rope remembers that episode where Kwee Kwee and Ishmael are tied together and Ishmael is whining because he thinks it's unfair. If has to go down, he has to go down with him. We yeah. already talked about that. Um, I told you that story on myself. Um, and remember that Kwekud made it clear to Ishmael early on that he'd be willing to die for him. So here's Ishmael whining because he might have to go down. Um, says it's not fair. Um, the Grand Armada, um, I want to read a passage, I'll come back, I'm not sure we'll do it this morning, but I want to come back to that one passage where he talks about the quiet at the center of his soul. Remember that's that um, chapter dealing with the, the herd of whales and the mothers and their calves at the center, the whole herd protecting the mothers and the calves. It's something instinctive, the whole herd, it's, it, it's like there's this, it's an amazing chapter, it's, it's 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 an image of something in life that wants to protect life. It's so valuable. Instinctively, the whole herd surrounds the mothers and their calves to protect them. And the whalemen come in, and there's that one touching description of the mothers looking up at the at the whalemen. They're predators, and they're, they kill them, looking up at innocently, and the, and the young calves coming up and frisking. And then suddenly into this, into this piece comes this... Whale with all the irons cutting everything around, showing the the, the disastrous consequences of what humans do <coughs> to to violate this peace, this instinctive and I, this instinctive peace that we see in the whale. I asked everybody to set that off against the shark massacre because remember, in the shark massacre, we had images of the sharks starting to feast on the whale, turning on each other, and then finally turning on themselves because that's a it's in one ways an image of human enterprise. It's what we do with each other at work, just to get ahead, to step over somebody without realizing what we're doing to ourselves. Um, every one of these has an analogy to, to our lives. Um, okay, let me, let me get current here. Um, let's, um, in chapter 91, the the Pequod meets the Rosebud and remember the word rosebud because the word rosebud images the ship they're innocent foolish they're stupid they don't know what they're doing the the uh, stub and the Pequod crew diddle That's their word. They diddled them, they they conned them out of the whales because Stud knew that there was this this material at the heart of a dead whale called ambergris that is a source of valuable perfume. So they convinced the rosebud crew to turn loose of it and when the rosebud's out of sight, they they get it. And there's that wonderful quote, that allusion to St. Paul, who talks about um, incorruption coming out of corruption remember mm-hmm. but the image the whale images corruption there's foulness in him but out of that foulness can be drawn this, this thing of um, priceless ointment. Um, in uh, chapter 93 page forty42, 40 this is going to be really important I think for lots of this happening even, even though I don't think it's obvious Um, chapter 93, The Castaway, Stubb loses one of his, the members in his whale boat and, and Pip is forced to go along. Remember, he's black and he's small and it's it's fairly clear that there's a prejudice even there with, against blacks that Stubb's way of talking about him is implies a contempt because he's other. Um, the first time they go out, nothing happens, although Pip is really nervous. The second time they go out, when the whale bumps the, sh- the, the whale boat, Pip jumps. And he gets tangled in the lines, and at the top of 42, Tashtigo has to cut the lines. And When he cuts the lines, Stubb is furious, because he's lost this money. We're going back to the alien now, and, and the love that men have for booty. That they, that they prize booty and money more than they do human lives top of 42, so they have to cut it, and they get back, um, they finally recover him. And then Pip has, or Stubb has this to say to him in the middle of '42. Stubb then, in a plain, business-like but still half-humorous manner, cursed Pip officially. And that done inofficially gave him much wholesome advice. The substance was, "Never jump from a boat, Pip, except but all the rest was indefinite, as the soundest advice ever is. Because remember, and I'm all, all you know this. One of the hardest things all of us, all of us, experience all day long, every day of our lives, is applying a general principle, a rule, to circumstances. We can lecture our children, we can get into fights with each other, we always come from a principle that we're carrying, but the difficulty of applying that principle to circumstances is not easy, because circumstances change, and they're never duplicable, they're never the same. So I'm sure Stubb goes off here... Part of it may not even make sense. But all the rest was indefinite as the soundest advice ever is. Now, in general, stick to the boat is your true motto in whaling. But cases will sometimes happen when leap from the boat is still better. Moreover, as if perceiving at last that if he should give some undiluted conscientious advice to Pip, he would be leaving him too wide a margin to jump. Step suddenly dropped all advice and concluded with a peremptory command, stick to the boat, Pip, or by the Lord. I won't pick you up if you jump. Mind that, we can't afford to lose whales by the likes of you. A whale would sell for 30 times what you would. I don't know if I remember, I remember the line in uh, Merchant of Venice where Shylock says, because it's a pound of flesh, what's the worth of a pound of flesh or mud mud and beef and goat, you know. Mm -hmm. That there's that attitude in the commercial republic and we are a commercial republic. There's this attitude to degrade human beings Think about abortion. The, the worth of things because we value material things more. We put, a, we put a price tag on People who go to court when they lose somebody, you know, who may ask for a million dollars because somebody was responsible. I mean, how much money can buy a life back? So there's this fundamental tension at the heart of a commercial regime that there's this tendency to put a, va- a price tag on things. And Stubb makes it clear now that if Pip jumps again, He's gonna leave him for the whale. And that's what happens on page 483. Except this time, they don't come back for him. And this is what happens, 483 at the bottom. But it so happened that those boats without seeing Pip suddenly spying whales close to them on one side, turned and gave chase. And Stubb's boat was now so far away that he and all his crew so intent upon his fish that Pip's ring horizon began to expand around him miserably. By the merest chance the ship itself at last rescued him, but from that hour the little negro went about, the deck an idiot. Such, at least, they said he was. The sea had jeeringly kept his finite body up, but drowned the infinite of his soul, not drowned entirely, though, rather carried down live to wondrous depths where strange shapes of the unworked primal world glided to and fro before his passive eyes, and the miser merman, wisdom, revealed his hoarded heaps, and among the joyous, heartless, ever-juvenile eternities, Pip saw the multitudinous God-omnipresent coral insects that out of the firmament of of waters heaved the colossal orbs. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom and spoke it, and therefore his shipmates called him mad, so man's insanity is heaven's sense. And wandering from all mortal reason, man comes at last to that celestial thought, which to reason is absurd and frantic. And weal or woe feels then uncompromised, indifferent as his God. This is an extraordinary. He has a vision that's almost divine. When he sees God's foot on the treadle, he sees it in the water. Remember, we've talked about water as an image of grace. Um, I've got a question for you guys, just... For a moment, I, I, I know we're. I want to. I still want to watch our time here, but um, I want to get us back into the book as we get to the end. Um, but here's a question: What's that line from Paul where Paul talks about the wisdom of men is more foolish than the or the than the foolishness of God? Or what's the, what's what's that line? Does somebody the wisdom of men? No, the
1: foolishness of God is more wise. Than
0: the, of God. the foolishness of God is more wise than the wisdom of God,
1: the wisdom of men.
0: or the wisdom of men. The foolish say it again, Doc. The
1: foolishness of God is wiser than
0: the wisdom of men. Does everybody have that? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: So, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Yeah. Um, think about the importance that men give rationality, in. and we've been talking about this from the beginning. And certainly when we did Wintersdale with Leontes, because Leontes an image of the masculine mind, thinking he's right, imposing his ideas on things, and failing miserably. has had this vision, and everybody on the ship sees him as being mad. And the question is, has he, has he had a revelation, from St. Augustine's I'm using his, a moment of illumination, where what he sees takes him beyond the realm of reason. So, and if you look at the men on board ship, remember, all of the men on board ship are governed by practical reason. They want to get a task done. What is Ahab doing? He wants to get from here to here. The last thing Ahab can do is look at a tulip or a crocus. Cro- who crocus. said that?
1: Crocus. crocus. Crocus.
0: Thanks. You knew. God bless your soul. Um, the last thing he could do is look at a crocus. Right? I mean, that, that sense, particularly in men, but I think even more and more with women as they step into a work world. With, you want to get from here to here with this sense of efficiency because you're a part of the machine. If you don't, you're replaceable. Somebody else can take your place. Robots. Hmm?
1: Robots.
0: Yeah. Um, so Pippa's had this vision, this moment of illumination, people on board the ship, according to their reason, see him as man. Um, Now, let me offer a thought here because I want to hear your thoughts about this. If you read, if if you look closely at 19th century fiction in writers like, um, um, you get a touch of it in Jane Austen, but really not much, but you get it everywhere in Charles Dickens and you get it everywhere in Dostoevsky. By the way, I'm thinking about asking you guys if you want to do Dostoevsky's Crime and, not Crime and Punishment, Brothers Care Brothers Karamazov would be a wonderful book to do with you guys, a um, really good book to do with you guys. But um, If you look at Dickens and Dostoevsky, you, you're watching writers who belong to a Protestant world of respectability, largely, the, that the sign of, of man's salvation is his respectability, that moral code, he's among the saved, he's dignified, he's proper. This is so pagan in some ways, even though we, they're dignified, they're proper, they're, they're among the elect, and the proof of it is they're respectable, they're law-abiding, they don't, father's words is morning they don't commit murder and they don't steal, that makes them good. <laughs> yeah, for, for those of you who weren't there, you missed a good homily, because there's all sorts of other sins that we have to deal with, but. What, what Dickens and, and, and um, Dostoevsky do is this, the hero of those books, except for Crime and Punishment, if you know Crime and Punishment, you know that Raskolnikov, who's the hero of that book, commits a murder, and we watch him go through the agony of being, we're going to, by the way, we're going to get this to Faulkner at the very end, that's why I'm looking forward to Faulkner. Um, they present these very respectable men, and because there is such a value given to respectability, they can't show the grotesque in them. What I've been saying, we lack in our world, you know, Dante's world. The, the, if we don't learn to see something grotesque in ourselves, we're not seeing ourselves. So what they do to deal with the sins of this person is, is present a double. So there will always be, or so often in these, in these books, there will be a double who's the counterpart of the hero who images something bad. And in Dostoevsky, it's worse than it is for Dickens because I think Dostoevsky is, a far, <coughs> is far more deeply spiritual than Charles Dickens is. But you get this doubling. Is that clear? Because they've got, they cannot completely undermine respectability because that's the standard of their world. Take that away and what have you got? Particularly in England. You all following? Is that clear? Pip goes mad right at this time when Ishmael's going to have the squeeze of the hand change, he's going to turn, he's going to change, I want to read it in a minute, and he goes mad just at a time when we're about to get into Ahab's psyche, and we'll see in just a couple of chapters that Ahab and Pip are going to be bound together. Pip, they, they, they hold hands, it's a touching, it shows something so tender and human in Ahab, very deeply human. Pip says, go get the blacksmith and have him rivet our hands together. And Ahab says, I will never let go of you, except unless the ship goes down, because he wants to save him. It's a a tender expression of this little black man that everybody else despises. The only care he gets from anybody is from Ahab. So my question is, is, is Pip an image of something in these other men that they don't see? Anybody want to try... Anything on that for a minute before we go on?
1: He's an image of transformation. He was transformed. I don't hear that the other guys were.
0: Yeah, right. I don't think it's obvious at all. Well, let me suggest this, just... Particularly after this moment, it's a question in mind, because we're going we're gonna to see Ahab at his most tender in the next few chapters. There's going to be this tender exchange with Pip that is absolutely endearing. There's going to be this tender exchange between Ahab and Starbuck at the railing. Ahab is going to look down into the sea and weep. He will cry. He knows he's going to his end and he can't stop himself. Starbuck says, one last time, my, my, it's t- it, I mean, they're famous words. It was in one of these Hollywood movies. My captain, my captain, my captain, my captain, t- turn away. Um, and Ahab can't. Is Pip an image of, of some innate goodness in man that's being lost that Ahab can't get to because this darkness in him uh, mm-hmm. eclipses it. Why did Melville bring this in at this time of the story? He didn't have to do this. Remember that. Remember we're in a world of fiction. I mean, writers are, remember from the beginning, writers are deflecting. They've got oblique ways that they're trying to help us look at things that we miss, that we don't see. From the beginning I've been saying that so often we don't see things, and writers help us to see things. Like, just if you look at that description of the underworld of Pipsie's, that's the writing of a poet. I hope you heard that. I mean, what he described. How could any writer articulate that? Yeah?
1: One of the things that occurred to me, Bob, as I was reading that was, Pitt is an innocent, he's not a deep thinker. He's what, an innocent? Is that what you're Yes, Yes, that's what I said, he's not a deep thinker. Yeah, He's one of the the lesser. Yes. But, But he acknowledges or is put in a physical Position where he has no power, where he has no Absolute, anything, no yes. hope, no yes. anything, and he's abandoned. But there are other people who can't see that we are all in that position. Yes, yeah. it, it seemed to me that that yeah. was part of what.
0: Yeah, he I think that's really good. He's he's abandoned. He's powerless. Yeah. He can't do anything. He's everybody left him. By the way, which is one. It, it's. It, I'm so glad you said that. It's it's one of the hidden things of the Pequot's cruise, right? It's all self-interest and greed. They're cheating each other. They're gonna go out to kill this whale. Stubb makes it clear that if Pip jumps, he's not worth saving. A whale will bring in more money. So behind it is this implicit readiness to abandon. That, that there's a I don't know what to call it. there's this fundamental radical selfishness at the center of this quest. Self-centered. Particularly with its wounds. And I've asked you all to think about this. This is America. This this is an image of us. I'm saying, if we don't read for that, we're missing something here. That there is at the center of all of us these wounds and something self-centered in the way that we deal or hide from them. And I just, I think what you're saying is, is right on, that Pip images, he isn't innocent. It's a question in my mind how much he images something in Ishmael and something in Ahab. And I want to say that, I'm not trying to be provocative. I, I think we will miss the drama if we don't see that there's something of that in Ahab. That he, that he will not, cannot get in touch with. This dark stuff in him won't allow. He's so committed to this quest. So we have this sense of doubling, I think, that, that uh, Melville's introducing here at this point in the story, okay? I'm gonna read one more thing, and then, and then I'm gonna... Remember in the, when, they diddled, when they diddled the rosebud, they got this um, spermaceti, I mean the um, ambergris, and the, the men are called to this task of squishing it because it's in the form of goggles. So they have to squish it to, to get it into a liquid form. And this, I think this is the third peripatia. You all know that word by now, right? I'm making you half Greek. You all remember peripatia. The term, according to Aristotle, Every good tragedy, every good, I think every good plot, turns on the has, embodies the action of the peripatia. It's always there. It's there at the beginning. The good plots. There will be a turn. So it's always there. And then we come to it and it turns. And I, we, we call that a metanoia, a conversion moment. And remember for Aristotle, it's always com- accompanied by a moment of recognition. The anagnorisis. The recognition. We reach these points in our lives where we see something. It's painful. We'd rather not do it. Um, it hurts, but it's the beginning of a change. If we're going to change at all, we have to go through these moments. There, there have been three parapetias already. The first one, I remember, is in that the the uh, bosom friend chapter where he and, and Kwi Kwi are in bed, and he said, "I felt my splintered heart melt." that this man who terrified him the night before has warmed his heart and and he began to feel this affection for him that he never felt before. The other, I think the second is in the Grand Armada. Hold on. Um, 454, I think, let me just I wanna it's worth, yeah 454 towards the top Remember, they're in, this, in the center of this pool, and this whale comes in with a harpoon stuck to it on the lines thrashing about with the cutting blades. And it actually cuts the umbilical cord, it wraps around it, so it's striking right at the heart of this nurturing, this, the, the feminine the, the, that um, Melville shows us, that there are these two seemingly opposite principles at work, the, the masculine, the shark attack, and the nurturing here of the mothers, um, caring for the babes. Um, um, and at that moment, when the whale comes in, bringing havoc into the center, into this calm, this human disaster, or the, or the result of a human failing, violently intruding itself on this piece, you know, cutting the umbilical cord, he writes this, and thus though surrounded by circle upon circle of consternation and affrights did these inscrutable creatures at the center freely and fearlessly indulge in all peaceful ser- concernments, yea, serenely reveled in dalliance and delight. I mean, what could be, it's almost identic, almost like Eden. Um, in all peaceful concernments, yea, serenely reveled in dalliance and delight. God, how dug but even so amid the tornadoed Atlantic of my being do I myself still forever centrally disport in mute calm, and while ponderous planets of unwaning woe revolve round me deep down and deep inland there, I still bathe me in eternal mildness of joy." So no matter how bad things are on the outside, no matter how destructive, he he knows that the center of his being is this mildness and joy. Compare that to Ahab, just for a second. Can Ahab say that? So I would say that the bosom friend, the armada, the grand armada here, um, remember even though, even though we don't hear Ishmael saying, I'm separating myself from the cause, from the, those are not the sentiments he would have expressed in the quarterdeck scene when he said, I shouted, my voice was louder than the rest. He, a- Ishmael's going to the center of his being and finding there this joy mindless of joy. Mm-hmm. Now here in, the, in the, um, the squeeze of the hand, chapter 94. So the men have gathered for this task on page 45. As I sat there at my ease, cross-legged on the deck after the bitter exertion at the windlass, under a blue, tranquil sky, The ship under indolent sail and gliding so serenely along as I bathed my hands among those soft, gentle globules of infiltrated tissues woven almost within the hour, as they richly broke to my fingers and discharged all their opulence like fully ripe grapes, their wine, as I snuffed up the uncontaminated aroma, literally and truly like the smell of spring violets, I declare to you that for the time I lived as in a musky meadow, I forgot all about our horrible oaths. In that inexpressible sperm, I washed my hands and my heart of it. I almost began to credit the old Periclesian superstition that sperm is a rare virtue in allaying the heat of anger. While bathing in that bath, I felt divinely free from all ill will." Divinely free. Something's happening here. Because remember, remember, he began the book whenever I find myself bringing up funeral lines, I, the image of a musket, a gun, a sword falling on his sword. He's he's in despair. He doesn't completely understand why he's running away from something. We saw that. There's this despair in him. He and it's so great that he that he allows himself to be tricked by the captains. So he's exactly exactly like Jonah, exactly. Here, I felt divinely free from ill will or petulance or malice of any sort whatsoever. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. All the morning long I squeezed that sperm till I almost melted into it. I squeezed that sperm till strange sort of insanity came over me. Pit's just become insane. I'm not kidding here. I mean, I think something, something's going on. We're, we're moving towards something right now. Changes are taking place. I squeezed that sperm till a strange sort of insanity came over me and I found myself unwittingly squeezing my co-laborers hands in it, mistaking their hands for the gentle globules. Such an abounding, affectionate, friendly, loving feeling did this avocation beget that at last I was continually squeezing their hands and looking up into their eyes sentimentally as much as to say, Oh, my dear fellow beings, why should we longer cherish any social acerbities? or know the slightest ill humor or envy. Come, let us squeeze hands all around. Nay, let us squeeze ourselves into each other. Sound, sounds Hindu or Buddhist. <laughs> I love this thing. Um, let us squeeze hands around. Nay, let us squeeze ourselves into each other. Let us squeeze ourselves universally into the very milk and sperm of kindness. Would that I could keep squeezing that sperm forever. Um, so this is an explicit turn. I mean, something's happening here. Now I've got just a question and, and there's more to do here, but I I took too long with the, all the other stuff. So, two things and I want to come back to this. It's interesting to watch what will happen next. Um, Ahab's going to meet the Enderby and when he returns to the ship he's going to twist his leg and splinters the, the artificial leg. He'll go to the carpenter and don't overlook those scenes because the carpenter is likened to a Prometheus figure, he, he creates beings, but he's a machine. I'm going to read it next week. He, Ishmael presents him in exactly the way people, um, AI people, artificial intelligence people, exactly the way pe- those people look at human beings as parts that can be put together to make a computer. Everything he does is mechanical, so the one thing he cannot get to is the human soul. He can fix everything on board. Read those, read those two chapters on the, on the carpenter, because they're really good. He looks at a tooth a certain way. He looks at a head of a certain way. What he does is materialize a human being, like a part that can be replaced. So it's an anticipation. It's the prototype of the modern computer of man, artificial intelligence, that we can create this thing, this robot. So look at those. And once again, Ahab is offended, wounded, to know that he's at the mercy of a guy like that. So things are happening. Now, remember, he, he had to throw away, he threw away the quadrant, he loses the compass and has to make one of his own devising, and he loses the log and line. Here he has to have his leg replaced. A, a part of him is replaced. Um, you know, we go to the doctors and we have they haven't quite figured out the soul yet but, um, um, so all of these things are, are, um, are happening. Keep these in mind, particularly these episodes with um, Ahab and the Carpenter and then Ahab with Stark because we're about ready to um, hit the climax. But I have a question for before, before you guys before we leave. Um, why, this is the nothing scene again. He's squeezing. He's squeezing sperm. Squeezing sperm. We're back, Linda. <laughs> he's. Sque- what? What? What is it? That, what is it about this episode that produces this uh, peripatia? Why this? It's a nothing episode, right? It's, it's not. I mean, it's not the. You know, in a in a novel where the the. The conversion takes place because of some great things happen. You, you know, you have a great revelation, or he's squeezing sperm with these men. And yet, in the moment, he is radically transformed, changed. Why? Anybody want to offer a thought on this? One of the evening parishioners was liking it to a little child playing in mud. You know, when you get your hands in and it's. Um, but what do you guys.
1: Now you go. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I think it's because you have to be kind of quiet in the mundane of the activity to be able to reflect and kind of see what's going on around you and kind of get in touch with your thoughts and feelings. So just the mundane activity
0: is squeezing those globules. You know, I wonder sometimes I don't, if women, when they wash dishes or used to, I mean now, if, and I'm, I'm saying this really seriously, if, in a mundane activity, when you're doing something and it's quiet, in those quiet times, if you don't approach something like prayer. But when you're too busy in an artificial world, too efficient, you, you put yourself out of touch with... There's something going on here in, a, in its mundane... David, did you go ahead? You.
1: Well, I, I don't know if this is correct or not, but anyway, I mean, what he's got in his hands is part of the essence of life. That that God, you know, you yep. got this and you got this, yep. and, and he is viscerally touching that, and I, that would be overwhelming, I would
0: think. Particularly if you saw. I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't agree. I really think the fact that it's sperm mm-hmm. is not irrelevant. And you put it really nicely that it's it's the source of vital life. That that. And you're in touch with it. You, you know you're um, doing something with it in a mundane, ordinary way. It's not. It's not Promethean, It's not. You're doing this. It's just you're in touch with everything that makes us ordinary.
1: Um, I would I would back that up with even deeper. When he's doing that, when they're he, they're doing that, he's realizing that this work is draining the life energy in him out of him. And also Mother Nature is involved because it's the the feminine side of it too. She's dead as well. The whale. boat oh, yes, the whale because the the two together and this enterprise, so to speak, is killing both of us. The energy, the life. Where do you
0: life. see the draining out of him? That's
1: hard for me to see. Because I think I've been to the male psyche here, which is, <laughs> okay, but it's it. It's an orgasmic moment to go out and and whale. I mean, to get this, this is what they're going for, they're going for the jugular, they're going to dominate the enterprise of whaling, for, for money, whatever their reason, they are now in control, and now that they have the control, and they're draining the life out for their money or whatever they're going to do with this whale, they're seeing that the fruitlessness of... They're,
0: or Ishmael, anyway. Yeah, Ishmael yeah. is coming yeah.
1: to a realization that yeah. this, he projects himself into it. In other words, that's real.
0: Yeah. It's hard for me to find anything life-draining in this moment, but, but let me let me offer this, because it, it's interesting that you would put that the way you did, because, and I'm looking for the... There's that chapter... Um, it, it's the tale... The, it's not, the whale is silent, I can't, chapter 79, I'll have to go back, I'll find it and bring it next week. But it's the cleaning up and stowing down. If you remember that chapter, cleaning up and stowing down, oh, here, chapter 98. It's, it's page 499. Uh, that's, an, that's an exact, what you just described here, is an exact description of what Ishmael's describing of the whale activity. It's not put in sort of modern psychological, you know, um, archetypal terms, but... But he describes them as, uh, as undergoing the Sisyphean. Sisyphus was that that mythic figure that pushed the rock down and came. That it's this ongoing, fruitless endeavor. It's like the shark massacre. That, that what you're doing in all this work, if you look at that at that chapter, the 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 uh, stowing down and cleaning up at around 4.99, it actually comes to the end and says, and that they're killing themselves. In their pursuit of this, that they just mindlessly keep going through this activity again and again and again without realizing how much they're turning on themselves, just like the sharks did. Remember in that. Now, I would differ with you in the Ishmael episode because it seems to me um, that that um, something life giving is happening, and the fact that it's with spermacetic to me is not an accident. There's something life-giving, that he he stepped outside of that quest, remember he says at that moment. So he he really separates himself from what you're describing, what Ishmael at that earlier chapter describes as this mindless, repetitive activity that takes our lives away. I I think he's stepping outside of it and in, in some intuitive way breaks from it and finds this love beginning to grow in him, because this, this is so sentimental, so tender, you know, looking in each other's eyes and squeezing their hands. What, what I love about it is, you know, so much, of our, so much of our lives is so often spent striving, I think over striving, to do something. It's like we have to constantly prove ourselves, or we, we have to become better, or we won't be loved. In this moment, Ishmael comes to this love by doing a very ordinary thing. It's like it relates... Remember, remember when we first started with Achilles and Hector? Hector wanted to be as a god. He wanted to be better. He wanted people to see him in a certain way. And that's that's that embarrassing scene at the end when he when he becomes... He cares more about what other people think than what he does. Achilles gives up his life. He accepts his death. He, um, even though it's pagan and heroic, it doesn't. It's it's in the direction of Christ. It's not there, but it's in that direction. Um, there's something about the ordinariness of the mundane. the that, that, and remember, ordinary. The word ordinary. God. The word ordinary means ordinent, ordinate, appropriate, lawful. That when human beings try to exceed their nature, and we've been looking at that from the very beginning, we become something that we're not. When we accept our humanity, we become this extraordinary, glorious thing that God made, because he didn't make us angelic, he made us humans. The great glory that Christ performed when he came, is that he took the divine, he thought enough of our human nature to enter it. Can there be a greater glory to anything on the earth than a human being? There's something about this episode in which he he is involved in this activity with the sperm, I think both of you were right on, that... But, but, um, that seems to break open his heart, and he finds himself loving it. Let me just read it once more, and then we'll then we'll stop for the day. Forty-five. And by the way, remember what's happening now. Let me just to put this in perspective, because we didn't, we don't. I don't want to. I don't want to go any longer, because we should stop. But we had Pip going over. Ahab's casting away the stuff and reshaping all the navigational instruments. The nature of the ship is changing. Um, it's under, far more under his control. He, and he's, he's estranged himself from nature. He's not looking at the sky, the stars, the quadrant would do that. He's lost the log and line. He's made his own compass. He is dominated. There's a complete control thing going on. Pip falls overboard. Ishmael has the squeeze of the hand, and immediately following it is the Triworks episode, if we'd had time I would, because it's there that Ishmael sees that this ship is demonic. What he's going to show is the harpooners and the sailors with fires going into the night sky with demonic kinds of eyes. It's a hellish scene, and he describes the ship as, a, as, a, as a, an inflamed ship rushing to hell. So that's the first moment where something dark, where where the dark that's been implicit, buried, actually comes to the surface. So we are moving towards um, something overpowered. Okay. So the tri-work scene, when it's at night, and as a matter of fact, Ishmael turns himself around. He's so overcome by the vision of this darkness that he, he comes out of it, this trance that he's been in, and and he's turned around. He he says he was on the verge of taking the ship down because it lost control. So all these things are surfacing right now. There's more going on, so we're we're approaching a climax. But here, just the squeeze of the hand once more. I'm on 486. Such an abounding, affectionate, friendly, loving feeling did this avocation beget that at last I was continually squeezing their hands and looking up into their eyes sentimentally. And remember when... um, I squeezed the sperm till a strange sort of insanity came over me. Oh, my dear fellow beings, why should we longer cherish any social acerbities or know the slightest ill humour or envy? Come, let us squeeze hands all around. Nay, let us all squeeze ourselves into each other. Let us squeeze ourselves universally into the very milk and sperm of kindness. There is something about accepting our ordinariness, the mundane, and in this case, it's it's. The source of vital life, the sperm—what could be more, what could be more ordinary—as the principle of our vital life—and he's in touch with it, in in humility, he's working it. That is, he's not over—he's not over aspiring; he's not trying to be, to do a great thing. It's like he's accepting of something human, and in this moment, in his lowliness, this love is released. So, okay. So you guys have a have a good week. By the way, I hope I if I did, wait. Can I get yeah. sorry before you? I meant to say this earlier. I hope all of you pray. All of you have a good Lent. All of you have a good Lent. Oh, by the way, um, next week I'm gonna. Can I get sorry? Sorry, I, next week. I'm going to go into next week with the idea of trying to get to the end. I'm not sure that we'll do it. But even if we do, we're going to have a break because the week after is that week off at church so we don't meet for a week. When we come back, I'd like to give half of that class to Melville to say some final words and start Go Down Moses. So next week, I'm going to plan to try to end it. If not, it'll be the following week and the week after that. But we're approaching the end. So you we meet on that. St.
1: Patrick's Day, but not on the 24th. We meet the 17th. Next week. Next, Next week, Friday, and then we miss a on. week. And then we miss the 24th. Right, right.
0: right. Thanks.
1: For the end? you can't you can't do that you can't do that you don't have my permission you can't miss that what's
0: I love by the way I love what you did with